So today we have quite a big challenge ahead of us because we are going to try to review element five of the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We've been doing a review and we're trying to do one week per element. And those of you who've been around for a while may recall we originally did 30 messages on element five. So I'm going to try to summarize 30 messages in one message and... Uh, with only about 40 minutes left to do it since we got started late. So hopefully uh, hopefully we'll do okay with this. So element five, if, uh, if you look at Roman number one on your sheet, it get, lists you all the elements, including element zero, which was a four-week introduction that we, we uh, reviewed that and summarized that in one week at the start about five weeks ago. And that is uh, summarized there in Roman numeral two. Uh, four weeks ago, we summarized... Uh, element one, and we added in, in Roman numeral three there, we added the whole concept of worldviews. It's important that you understand that every person you're talking to has a worldview and that you at least have those three questions memorized so that you can ask just a few questions to understand what their worldview is. Every person is religious. They are created in the image of God, and therefore they're inescapably religious. And they have questions in their mind and heart about who or what is ultimate reality. And they are, what is the nature of mankind? Man is basically good or something like this. Um, and um, they have uh, ideas in their mind about how we should treat our fellow man and how you sh could go about bringing about a more just and equitable society. And, of course, Western people, for the most part, have uh, either a view of no God or they have a, a view that vaguely resembles the Judeo-Christian biblical God but greatly reduced in his, in his awesome attributes. Then they'll have a view of man that man is basically good partly because they don't study history and they don't realize all the horrible inhumanity to man that that man has always did done then when it comes to law and society they will generally have two things that you need to be aware of one is they'll know that there's injustice and they'll be upset about injustice but they won't see the injustice or the sin in their own heart but they do see it in everyone else's heart because anyone could do that why do you notice the uh, speck that's in your brother's eye when behold the log is in your own eye it takes the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the law of God and uh, all these kind of things acting in your life to begin to actually evaluate your own sin in correct light. Sin is a powerfully deceiving force. And all of us have been led astray in our perceptions of reality by sin. You know, and especially if they've been raised in some kind of evangelical Christianity that has made a mountain out of a molehill as far as what the sins are, and, uh, you know, turned it into things like whether they have ever drank beer or not, or, um, or they enjoy ballroom dancing or something, whatever. You know, like the, the, the essence of legalism is sometimes almost comical. So, uh, to see sin is, is my rebellion against God, my desire to be my own God, my pride, my self-reliance, my being a know-it-all, uh, my being critical of others while not very hard on myself, and so forth. These are what people need 
if you really love them and want to help them. Uh, so then we looked at, uh, that, that gets us into Roman numeral five there. Number six, we began to look at the Ten Commandments and their ongoing purposes. And then last week, we looked at um, several things. We looked at, number one, why all New Testament uh, proclamations of the gospel included some missing elements today. And so all of these elements that we're talking about are somewhat missing, but Roman numeral seven there that we covered last week are ones that are sometimes completely missing. So um, number one, the historical narrative of Israel. There are no gospel presentations in the New Testament that don't summarize the history of Israel, and we covered why last week. I can't get into reviewing that much. I've listed some of the reasons in abbreviated form on this sheet, but if you really want to get into that, get last week's outline and go through last week's message. Um, they all have an impending warning of judgment. We never have that in America. In fact, we make fun of fire and brimstone preachers, and uh, very few people maybe have read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which actually uh, lots of people credit that as being one of the great starting points of the Great Awakening. We'd still be British sub subjects without that sermon. <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, so we, we looked at why that's included. So today, flip over. I'm already ready to flip the page because we, again, we're quite a bit behind when we started today. So today we are going to review element five, which is Jesus Christ, the only mediator, bridge, or solution. Now, if you were going to turn that into theological terms, that's called Christology, the study of Christ. This whole series would follow, uh, fall under what's called soteriology, the doctrines of salvation. Now, for most of the elements in this series, I've tried to have one key verse that was kind of the introductory verse to that element. This, uh, this one uh, has two key verses, so we're going to read those real quick. Number one is Matthew 16, 13 through 16, which we're not going to be able to read. Uh, really, you want to read the whole section, Matthew 16, 13, to the end of the chapter, something around like verse 21. And you might want to get my uh, message in the podcast from a couple years back called Mountains in Matthew to, that we really did a lot with the why Jesus took the disciples. The one and only time he took them out of Israel, he took them up to the the base of the mountain that Herod's uh, temple was built on to a place called the Gates of Hades. And therefore, when he says that, that he will build his church and even the Gates of Hades will not prevail against it, it means a lot more than what modern people think it means. So, in any case, we're not going to get that far into this. We're going to only be able to read four of the verses. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's where he took the, the disciples. Uh, the, that's where the, the base of the gate of Hades was. He was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man, by the way, is a title for the Messiah in Daniel 7. So Jesus is, is much more clear with his disciples than he is with the public at large that he's the Messiah, that he's Christos, that he's the one they've been waiting for. He's constantly uh, saying that 
to the public using references like this from the Old Testament that everyone knew was a Messianic reference, but he's just plain out saying it to the disciples all the time. So who do the people say that the Son of Man is, uh, that is the Messiah? And they said, some say this, and some say others, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist risen from the dead. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? I would suggest to you when you're leading someone to Christ to center everything you do in that question. Who do you say that I am? Because even Christians have a very reduced view of Jesus. If someone is not radically on fire for God, if, if they haven't, uh, their social skills haven't come together because of God, if they, their career hasn't changed because of God, if their values of education and biblical studies hasn't changed because of God and so forth, then they have some diminished ideas about who Jesus is. And the church is rampant with that problem today. Um, so, Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was upon that revelation that Jesus said he would build his church in contradistinction to Moses' church, uh, to the called-out congregation. He uses the word ekklesia, which is the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament's uh, word for the assembly of the Lord or, or the people of God. And it's, uh, that word is only used two times in the New Testament, but both referring to the church. And that's why when you study the church, you actually call that the study of ecclesiology. Okay, now, 1 Timothy 2, Paul uh, says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So he's crawling, he's going on to say that the man Christ Jesus is our Savior, but he's calling him God and the man Christ Jesus in the same verses. Uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that's a tough verse, uh, verse to deal with. Because the Bible clearly says that God foreknows and predestines uh, all things, even those who would turn to him or not. Yet Jacob he loved and Esau he hated before they'd done one thing, good or bad. But in, there must be some sense, because the, the Bible is true, and the Bible is non-contradictory. So the, thing, the way I tend to describe this verse, people will say, uh, well, gee, this verse is contrary to the idea of predestination, foreknowledge, and election, which we taught uh, in chapter 6 of this series. Um, or element 6, I should say. And uh, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. People uh, who believe in predestination, foreknowledge, and election have a tendency not to talk about that verse. <laughs> but uh, people who believe in the will of man and so forth love that verse. Um, so the, the thing I try to explain is you are pretty small compared to God. Your brain is, is the, if, if you were to compare, um, the distance between some of the highest intelligent animals, well, let's do it differently. If you were to compare your brain with some of the lowest animals, like for instance, uh, you know, when you have a goldfish in your little aquarium. That goldfish brain is so underdeveloped that it has no memory at all. So every little trip around that aquarium is brand new to him. <laughs> As if he's seeing it for the first time. And uh, that's why they don't try to do much with training fish. Fish do get trainable to a certain level because they will get enough, uh, uh, well, 
goldfish aren't so much, but tropical fish will have enough brain power usually to uh, to know like when the light goes on and the lid goes up or whatever, or when you sh show the food out in front of the aquarium <laughs> to go to the top because they're about to get fed. And, and so, uh, but I haven't ever trained, seen a fish trained to sing opera. But uh, in any case, uh, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom or a propitiation, it could be translated, for all the testimony to be given at the proper time. So those are our kind of our two uh, verses that uh, for the foundation of what we're doing today. And um, let's try to get into, I'm going to have to kind of cover one of these a minute. I'm going to try to review what we did in 30 messages. Um, now, this would be equivalent to what you would get in a university course on theology or, well, no, more than, way more than you get in a university course on theology. More like a university course on Christology. Uh, it may, perhaps more at the master's or seminary level. But um, those of you who are taking our systematic theology class, you'll notice there's a unit of the eight units. One of them is completely on the study of Jesus Christ or Christology. But we decided in this series to go into it a lot deeper than the theology class goes into it. Okay, so the theology class would be a great introduction to this. So, one th uh, point one there is actually something I added today for no extra charge. Um, it wasn't in the summary. And that is uh, something that, that uh, we always focus on a lot when we talk about uh, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. When we take people into an introductory study and prepare them to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, the first thing we want to do is study the person of the Holy Spirit, that is the being or ontology of the Holy Spirit, for those of you who are theologically inclined. Then we want to study the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that is the economy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, hopefully to Maybe even today could explain to us, or sometime if you're, you know, John tends to stay late on Friday night so people can ask him theological questions on Sundays. If you're not familiar with the fact that right now there's actually a, a little heresy from the early church that is, is uh, growing uh, among certain evangelical theologians called the, the eternal subordination of the Son. And they'll take verses like uh, when P G Jesus says the, that the Father is greater than I, and they'll say the Son is subordinate to the Father. But that is when you're talking about what's called the economic trinity. That is how the, the, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose to relate to each other in God's redemptive history of, man, of saving man. But from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully God. They're co-equal, co-eternal, and there's no, there's no uh, subordination of the Father to the Son or the Son to the Father or the Spirit to the Son or the Father. They are all fully God, right? Now, in terms of how they function in redemptive history, the, as we say in the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Sp Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He's the creator. He's as fully God as God is. But he proceeds in terms, of, in terms of economics, in terms of how God functioned in redemptive history, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Together with the Father and Son, we worship and glorify him. 
But he came for a particular purpose. And the purpose he came for, of course, he came all through the Bible's history. He's present in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God is moving on the waters, Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. He's Genesis 1, 26, God is speaking to himself, let us make man in our image. He's, uh, he is present, prevalent in all of creation. He's the, he creates life. He creates new life. Every person in the Old Testament who was born again, like David or Abraham, was born of the Holy Spirit, reborn of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, he, he's the one behind all the miracles of the Old Testament, New Testament. He comes in a, some greater dimension in Pentecost. And that greater dimension centers around this. All the miracles, all the gifts center around his ministry to glorify Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 tells us that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. John 15, 26 and 27, uh, God says, uh, when the helper, the parakletos, which is the term Jesus uses in, in chapter 14, 15, and 16 of John's gospel for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, Usually translated helper in, in modern translations, sometimes counselor, because it was a Greek word for your attorney, someone who walked alongside you to save you, help you, guide you, uh, get you through the court of law. Like you're, you know, like they say in law, like an attorney that represents himself has a fool for a client. You need representation. You need the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. But when the helper comes he will testify about Jesus. That's what he does all the time. And you will testify about me because you've been with me from the beginning. All Christians have two powers at their disposal to testify of the Lord. One is the testimony of the Holy Spirit and his power. Two is the testimony of the eyewitnesses that walked with Christ, saw Christ, and that's why you want to read some books about the validity of the resurrection and, and the historical reliability of the Gospels and so forth. Some of the introductory kind of junior high level ones like um, uh, Josh McDowell's. No, no, Josh McDowell, not Josh Mc, Joel McDermott. Josh McDowell's more than a carpenter. Uh, then all, you can go all the way up to guys like N.T. Wright who have like a 600-page book on on the validity of the resurrection and so forth. But you should be, as a Christian, you should be able to make the case why the resurrection of Jesus Christ would stand up in a court of law. Because that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do that. You should also remember that Luke 16, just because they, they, that you present the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus said in Luke 16, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. People do not re reject Christianity because there's not enough evidence for it. That's their excuse on the surface, but even when they are presented with the evidence, they don't fall down and worship him and repent unless God is drawing them into the kingdom. No one can come unless the Father draws them, Okay. Important for you to understand. So I'm probably spending way too much time on this point, but we really need to understand that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that should help you with what John's always talking about, and I'm always talking about, called the apostolic hermeneutic, which is to begin to learn how to read the Bible in a Christocentric, a Christ-centered way. And I thought his 
uh, illustration of David and, and, and how that's taught in Sunday schools, David killing Goliath versus a Christocentric one, was, was really, really simple to understand and good. And hopefully he'll keep, keep giving us a good example of that every week or so. so that to, and, and we've done a lot of teaching over the last three or four years trying to, trying to help you learn how to read the whole Bible in a Christocentric manner. That, that's how the apostles did it. That's way deeper than how the reformers did it. That's way deeper than how modern evangelicalism does it. And until you learn how to do that, you'll always be missing a big part of the message of every portion of Scripture you read. Okay? So, that's all no extra charge. I better move on. Uh, so, you, just to make connect the dots, if you're not clear on this, the Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures. Right? So, therefore, all of the Scriptures came are to bear witness of Jesus. In fact... Well, I'll throw in another point, no extra charge, that you need to understand. People talk about the lack of attention to the Holy Spirit in the church today. That's uh, more and more people are kind of coming to realize that he's the forgotten God, the neglected God, uh, especially among non-charismatic and Pentecostal versions of Christianity. He's sometimes completely ignored and snubbed. That's why I'm glad we sing some songs of worship to the Holy Spirit. Like, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You know, just as much as you can sing songs of worship to the Father and to the Son, you can sing songs of worship to the Spirit and can and should. However, it's not just because of the bad theology of our times that people neglect the Holy Spirit. One of the things you have to step back and see is why are all the reasons why he's neglected? One of the reasons he's neglected is that he himself bears witness of the Father and the Son. And he has emphasized the revelation of the Father and the Son in the Scripture. So when I teach uh, about the word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, I usually pick about 10. Um, and frankly, if, I was, if you asked me to give you 20, I'd really have to do some studying to get up to that many. But if you asked me to give you 50 word pictures of Jesus, I'd say, how long do you got and I wouldn't have to open my Bible to start giving them to you, right? Because there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of word pictures throughout the Bible. We actually have one of my favorite little posters back there in the toddler's room with, uh, you know, it's got all the names and word pictures of Jesus on it with the little scriptural reference underneath. And there's, and there's like a whole list of them there. If you haven't ever read that poster, or that's one you might want to put on your, a copy of on your laptop and just... Read it once in a while. Make sure you're familiar with the verses that testify about Christology, who he is. Because that's, you know, we are called Christians. All right, so uh, let's get into this. Uh, we did 30 messages, which I have summarized in 24 more points, points 2 through 25 here. And I'm just going to get uh, kind of touch on as many of them as I can in the remaining time. We'll see how far we get. We did two weeks on the I am sayings of Jesus and the Lagos sayings of Jesus. So we brought out the point that John 1, 1, the very first verse in John, uh, says, in the beginning, which is in Greek is NRK. We talk about archaic. You know, as long, if you say 
you know, Greg's kind of archaic. You're saying I'm old-fashioned and out of touch with modern times, and I would consider that somewhat of a compliment. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm not the Ancient of Days, though. He's the Ancient of Days. <laughs> I just was there a little closer to than when you were. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so in the beginning was the Lagos, NRK and Halagos. And Lagos comes from Platonic philosophy of the 5th century. It was also used by a Jewish-Greek philosopher named Philo at the time of Christ. And it's the idea of the creative principle, the meaning. Uh, we translate it word or sayings most of the time, but it's a much deeper picture than just the word. Uh, it's like the purpose of the word, the meaning of the word, the source of the word, the source of all things. And I wish I could develop that idea more, but I did so in the teachings on that, which we did for a couple weeks. Then John, who really emphasizes the deity of Christ in both the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, all of the above. Um, John calls Jesus, he pays attention to Jesus saying, Ego me" in Greek, which means I am, more than any of the other New Testament writers. Although we already saw where Peter says, who do people say, ego me? Jesus was giving them a clue. I am that I am. Who do, do people see that I'm Exodus 3.14 when Moses said, who shall I say he sent me? I am that I am. That's what Jesus was asking. Do, who do, do people see me as Exodus, as the I am of the Bible? And... Uh, You'll hear a lot in circles today that there were seven I am sayings or something of, of Jesus. I don't know where that idea comes from. I think it probably comes from a lot of people really like sevens. I used to do like, like to get seven points of this and seven points of that myself because it's a number representing com completion. Now I've, I've moved on to eight because it's the number of new beginnings. But uh, <laughs> So I always try to see if I can get it to become eight points. But in any case, I really don't know why they will say stuff like there's seven, but there's around 40 times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the door. I'm the chief shepherd. I'm the true vine. Many of the I am's are referring back to ways God was referred to in the Old Testament. So it goes beyond like if you were if you were inclined to be skeptical, unbelieving, and a butthead, uh, it goes beyond your objections that oh you, you're taking that too far. Ego of me, I am, and he. How do you know that he means I am that I am? Because he says I am everything the Old Testament says about God the Father, or about God. Period. The Trinity. So, God, you know. Uh, the Old Testament produced, uh, portrays God as the husband of Israel, and Israel is his bride. And Jesus says, I'm the true groom or the true husband. And he makes it clear when they ask him about fasting and so forth that he's, the, he's that, the husband. He's the vine. He's everything that God is referred to in the Old Testament. So there's about 40-some sayings. Point three, that's all the time I got for, I'm going to have to just introduce these points. Each of these messages develops these points more. Uh, the crucial role of Christology. You need to understand, we've already touched on this, 
that Jesus Christ is the central theme of all the scriptures. In John 5, 39, he's confronting the Pharisees who are rejecting his ministry, and he says, um, I lost my train of thought. He says, you search the scriptures. You guys are big on searching the scriptures because the Pharisees memorized the scriptures and all the Midrash and Mishnah, the commentary. That would be equivalent to, uh, you know, Sidney coming in and saying, I've memorized the entire ESV study Bible, not just the text, but all the notes, all the introductions to the books, and I've, I know it so well, I'm like a computer. You could just put in like 5A and I'll pop out, you know, <laughs> you know, this much of the ESV study Bible. That's who the Pharisees were, and Jesus claimed they didn't know the Bible at all because they didn't understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit and Christologically. So he says, you search the scriptures because you think you're going to find eternal life in the scriptures, but the scriptures bear witness of me. And until you let the scriptures bear witness of me, the scriptures are worthless to you. And you don't know them at all. That's why in his first appearance after the resurrection, uh, that he actually, uh, well, well not, not his first appearance, but on the first day, in, uh, as he appears toward evening, because he had appeared, of course, in the garden in the morning. But as he appears uh, to the two guys on the road to Emmaus, he begins to explain to them everything concerning himself in the law and the prophets. And then later that night, he appears in the upper room. By the way, the law and the prophets was just one way of an Israelite referring to the whole, what we call the Old Testament. Another way they, uh, we did a whole study on this in Wright State. I really would encourage you that our best Bible studies are Tuesday nights at Wright State. Although we went past 10 o'clock this past Tuesday. <laughs> but we've never gone, gone past 9 before. Well, maybe 9.15. But uh, <laughs> we're getting out of control. It was a good one. Um, but uh, where was I? I lost my train of thought. You know... Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, uh, he, it says that he opened their mind to understand uh, everything, implying that every little thing of the Old Testament is about him. Everything in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. That was another way that they referred to the Old Testament in the uh, in later centuries, the Hebrews came up with a, a, a word called Tanakh, which, they were, which is the first two letters of the Torah. I forget all the Hebrew words that, that represent the law, the wisdom literature, and all the prophets. Now, they see the prophets as a different way than we see the prophets. They put some of the historical books under the prophets and stuff, but that's another whole discussion. But he's talking about the whole Old Testament. And he's basically saying everything in it is about me. And that's what we're always trying to equip you at a Grace Christian Fellowship. If you're still a little bit like, you, you hear so much, oh, I can't stand reading Leviticus and Numbers, and oh my God, it's so tedious to read Jeremiah, because you haven't learned how to see Jesus in them. Or you're not born again or something. You don't love Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but if, if you love Jesus, and you begin to understand how, to, how Moses revealed remove the veil, how Jesus removes the, removes the veil that Moses put over his face, that is the veil uh, to be able to see Jesus. 
as he's as talked about in 2 Corinthians 3. If that's happened for you, you'll be very excited about Leviticus. Moving on, we then covered what uh, the main point you would hear in any, uh, oh boy, uh, any uh, class on Christology, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. I would suggest to you, if you don't have five or ten verses on either of those subjects, on both those subjects memorized, and if you can't tackle that when the Jehovah's Witness guy knocks at your door, next time invite him in, and if you can't convince him, then get more serious about studying that stuff. You know, I've only had one opportunity for a cult person to share uh, with me, I, I remember the night quite well because at the end of the night he prayed to receive Christ and renounced his Antichrist Christologies. Because he kept saying, well, our book says this. And I kept saying, but your book is claiming that this book is the word of God. So let's look at what this book says about Jesus, not what your book says about Jesus. So you should be able to do that. Those of you who are taking the church history class, 1 Corinthians 11, 19 is a very, very important verse. It says, for there must also be heresies, that's the King James Version among you. Most modern translations say schisms or factions. The Greek word is heresis, that heresies comes from, among you. That they which are approved may be made manifest to you, so that the truth can become obvious. God took the church through uh, five centuries of people trying to attack either the deity or the humanity of Christ. And there were seven ecumenical councils, the first four of which were, uh, were all about who is Jesus biblically that proved the deity and the humanity of Christ. One of those church councils, I think council, probably council number one was the Council of Nicaea, that we quote the Nicene Creed from. Uh, if you've never studied what's called the symbol of Chalcedon, which came from the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, it is the most thorough, definitive statement of Christology you could ever hope for. We tried to recite it once at church, but it's a little bit long and wordy. And it's, not, it's not that easy to recite for public worship. I wish it was. It's really, but it's, it's something you should study. Every Christian should have read the symbol of Chalcedon and been able to put Bible verses with the phrases in the symbol of Chalcedon. So, you must know the deity and the humanity of Christ. Now, the church used those church councils and the creeds that came out of them to smash all cults. From approximately the 5th century until shortly before the Reformation, there were almost no cults that attacked the church because the church had done away with them. Then what happened is after the Reformation, the certain groups like the Anabaptists, although there were some groups before the Reformation in France and so forth that you'll see covering the church history class, that began to say, in, in order to be more open to the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't have the structure of reciting creeds in our meetings. And as soon as that became very common, it kind of be, began to sweep evangelicalism in the late 19th century, and more and more churches moved to not reciting creeds, and all the cults were reborn under different labels, but the same ideas. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, the Way International, 
all of these false religions that are dragging people's souls into hell uh, were reborn because Christians had a better idea than the early church and said, let's not recite the creeds that Paul recited and so forth. And Paul didn't recite the Nicene Creed, but he recited uh, the creeds that were spoken in, in, the, in the very fierce years of the church, many of, line, of the lines of which found their way into the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed eventually, such as 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and so forth. So, just to be clear. Now, then we did some things for several chapters that you don't normally get. What you get in the West today is the West kind of starts with the epistles as the ultimate crown of Scripture, and, and therefore uh, neglects the Gospels a little and says you can't get doctrine out of the Gospels and out of the book of Acts and so forth. And so um, we kind of use the epistles to help us sort of have a, get comfortable with having a Christianity that doesn't look much like the Gospels or the book of Acts. And one of the ways they do that is um, not seeing the doctrinal implications of the historical books. So points F, number 5, 5F, 5G, 5H, 5I, on down to 5X, Y, are all, I've got before them the ministry of Jesus or the ongoing ministry of Jesus or the gospel historical Christology. That's the right place to start studying Jesus. You know, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 11 tell us to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, the place you start considering Jesus is the Gospels. And the next place you study Jesus is the book of Acts. Then you study Jesus from Genesis to Malachi. And frankly, studying Jesus all through the epistles is also popular, but that's, that's because icing is popular and cherry on top is popular. It's part, it's part of the cake. I don't like cake without icing. But, uh, but, but when you're a little kid, you just like the icing. <laughs> I encourage you to eat the whole cake. <laughs> so now every little kid that hears this will go home and tell their mother, the pastor said we should eat cake. <laughs> so did Marie Antoinette. But uh, I wish I had time. I'm kind of out of time to go through these things. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. One of my first talks with one of the first people I met from Cedarville University, um, with people who actually had Bible degrees, really, really surprised me because when we begin to talk talk about the uh, doctrine of being born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit, they didn't have much uh, insight or understanding into that. That, if, if you could actually say that of yourself, you should be like, wow. <laughs> like, you should do something about that. If you don't understand societal implications for, for why he was born of a virgin and conceived of the Holy Spirit and what that has to do with Christology and so forth. Uh, when he grew in grace, he was baptized both in water and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. He, uh, in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke, Matthew 3 and Luke 3. Then in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And later in both those chapters, he came out in the power of the Spirit and began to do his ministry, which John tells us in his gospel that if, if, the, 
If we recorded everything that Jesus did during the period of his ministry, the world itself would not be able to contain the books. That's pretty intense. Uh, You should begin to understand why Jesus is the principal pattern or archetype of everything. The law, the church, the prophets, the kings, etc. Um... You should understand that Jesus' ministry began with declarations, announcements, and so forth, some of which weren't very popular because the ones he did in Nazareth and Capernaum in Luke chapter 4 got him taken to the edge of the mountain to be killed, but it wasn't his time yet. (laughs) So uh, right away, he starts confronting the religion of his day, as well as proclaiming the kingdom is here now in our midst and making disciples and building his true community of faithful followers to Christ. There's nobody ever called in the, in the Bible who's not called to covenant commitment to Christian community. That's like what you're called to. And, you know, this hop around, I got my worship church and my evangelism church, and I got my good teaching church, and I got the church that I go to where the girls are prettier and for the single guys, and, uh, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, you know, that's kind of like modern Christianity in a nutshell. Nobody was ever called to that, and, th- and that will keep you shallow and keep you having lots of troubles. That's Satan's plan for you. It'll keep you from get- getting the hard, deep ministry you need to really develop character and become all that Jesus intends for you to become. It'll keep you from being ultimately fruitful. It'll let you be a little fruitful in a a little bit of shallow venues, but it won't let you become what God really wants you to become. Uh, We looked at the ministry of Jesus in in terms of making disciples. If you don't understand our teaching about five, the inf- three kinds of discipleship, informational, formation, and impartation, and the five C's of leadership, you should. That would really help you. Um, and, and on and on and on. Now, all the way down to five Y. Well, five W, we looked at the resurrection. We looked at the ascension. We looked at the, the promises of Pentecost. If you don't understand that the, the promise, the phrase promise it starts in Genesis 3:15 when what's called the proto-evangelical and there are promises all through the Bible and those promises you need to know two things about them those promises 2 Corinthians 1:20 says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus if you're not experiencing some of those promises try getting better circle focused on and hit the target closer of where Christ Jesus wants you to be and who he wants you to be. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, but they're not just from name it, claim it, and quote it, and, and shallow. It, therefore, people who press hard into the center of God's will for their life. Now, um, those promises, what was the second thing you need to know about those promises? All of those promises uh, kind of have their climax, you know, like I like, my wife and I like, as you know, like mystery movies. And at the mis- end of the mystery movie, the, you find out who done it, right? And then you look back and go, oh, I missed the clue of when he picked up that ring and I should have seen the scratch on the car meant, you know, that the bad guy was there, you know, or whatever. You know, and you, you go back and you see all the clues, that's, you know. 
I like to watch them before Catherine does, so I know where how it's going to end. You go, then I tease her. You want me to tell you how it's going to end? <laughs> so <laughs> then uh, all the promises of God culminate. You know, like when the lights really come on in a thing called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Satan's will for your life is to keep you too busy, too uninterested in studying. You have too many ministry appointments and whatever else to get baptized in the Holy Spirit and to learn how to walk in the power of the Spirit. And, you know, the doctrine that you received it all at conversion, I always just say the one simple thing. If you got it all, let's see it all. If it doesn't look like Jesus, and if it doesn't look like the early church, then we've got further to go into the Holy Spirit. I'm glad we have some testimonies. Leah had a great testimony of how getting delivered from certain demons healed her of her asthma. And we have, oh, a dozen or so of those kind of testimonies in our history as a church. But we certainly don't have enough of them. You know, we, have a, we really have a long way to go. I'm... De- kind of praying about, and we'll be talking in the elders' meetings about, you know, what's hard is because we've really tried to focus on the Scriptures and the lack of knowledge of the Scriptures that is destroying the church today, and especially the Pentecostal and Charismatic versions of the church. We've really tried to to, uh, address that and get you moved into a habit of being serious about biblical studies. But that's foundational to learning how to really walk in the power of the Spirit without the dangers. You know, it's compared to being drunk because it's dangerous. (laughs) You know, the new wine is heady wine. And if God really starts using you and you really uh, start uh, feeling his power and so forth and you don't get seduced and fall away and, and, and so forth... It'll be because you've got all the right factors in place of biblical knowledge, character, uh, the right accountability, covenant, community, and everything like that. We will move into greater and greater anointing as we have the character and the wisdom and the knowledge to do so. That's the plan. So uh, we looked at how the promise of Pentecost the present reign of Christ, which includes his present intercession. We looked at the doctrine of the second coming. We looked at the doctrine of eternal judgment, why that's important. Uh, How God gave us various remembrances, such as water baptism, the communion supper, the scriptures. There's different ways that we're commanded to be remembering, remembering, remembering. We're not supposed to be teaching something new. We're supposed to constantly go over all the things that we're supposed to remember, which is millions and millions and millions of wonderful things about Christ. Uh, and then we looked, we introduced ourselves to historical theology and the praise Christology played in that. All the battles in the early church were about who Jesus is. Because ultimately, all everything always comes out of that. Even if you're someone who emphasizes the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which I hope you do, you should emphasize that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Even though he has chosen to impart the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, it's Jesus himself that's baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. You, I have never baptized anyone in the Holy Spirit. I've been present and and laid hands on more than a thousand people who've received the Holy Spirit from Jesus. 
because he chooses for his own purposes, which are too involved for us to get into this morning, to, to work through the likes of us, because it's even more glorious, as Paul tells us. We have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God's. It, if he did it direct, it wouldn't be quite as impressive as the fact that he uses John Luke to, to do it. Because why? We're all buttheads. We're not educated enough. We're not purely motivated enough. We're, we're too tired. We're, we've got selfish ambitions and all kind of stuff that God still has to get out of us. Yet he still chooses to let something of his holiness, truth, glory, person, and power come through us. Uh, you must continue to seek sanctification and maturation and being more of a team and all these things. But he still uses us some as we are doing that. Amen.